Welcome to Bible and Bourbon with Pastor Ben. Today we are going to be studying the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. This week, will you please hold my city, Louisville, in your prayers. Last week, a mass shooting took place in my city, and it has affected the lives of many people here, and I know we could use a lot of your prayers. Now, let's start this study with a prayer. Lord of mysteries, we ask for your comfort. As we move on with our lives, will you be present with us always? Even in the moments of darkness, let us feel your presence all around us. For it's in those moments of darkness that we need you most. Let this not be the best part of our day, but only a building block to something better to come. Amen. Now, before we jump in with the reading for this episode, I wanted to let you know about a change that I am making for this episode. I don't know if it'll be permanent, but we're going to try it out at least this week. I'm going to leave in the times that I'm taking a drink. Often, I edit out the sound of drinking because I thought it didn't really add much to the narrative. But last week was Easter, as you know. I did not have an episode last week. Instead, I spent it focusing on church and on my family. After worship, when I met with my family on Easter Sunday, my father informed me that he had started listening to my podcast, but he had some problems with it. I think he said as an exact quote that no one wants to listen to some fool drinking flat Diet Coke with no ice in his bourbon. As far as he was concerned, a podcast named Bible and Bourbon should have some sort of sound of bourbon in it. So... Today, I am not going to edit out the ice cubes banging together or the drinks that I take. You're going to hear the sound of bourbon as we work through this Bible study. I might end up editing it out for next week, but we'll see how it works this episode. In honor of my father, I am drinking his favorite drink, an old-fashioned, made with homemade simple syrup, an overproofed bourbon, and garnished with a cherry and a orange twist. I'm using Wild Turkey 101 for the bourbon. From the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. When they had gone down, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave the order to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what is said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Raham. Rachel is weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, 
and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. The section that we read today is often called the Massacre of the Innocents. In it, we see the order from Herod to kill all male children under the age of two in the village of Bethlehem. You've probably heard of this passage before, but what's interesting is this narrative only shows up in the Gospel of Matthew. It's discussed here and nowhere else. Now, only Matthew and Luke include a birth narrative at all. So, without a birth narrative, it would make no sense for John or Mark to include this passage. But it's interesting that it's not included in Luke. But I think that says something particularly about Matthew and who his original audience was. But before we move into that, I'd like to talk a little bit about the historical study of this event. Ancient history comes from us in only a handful of sources. If something were to happen like this today, we wouldn't just have several chronicles about the event. We would also have newscast as well as individual social media fees. There would be a lot of people talking about this massacre of the innocents. However, that wasn't the case during the period of Jesus' life. Even though this period is recorded better than many other times, both before and after it, it still only comes to us in a handful of sources. The most prominent historical account of this time being the Bible itself. But there's also other historical accounts of the Roman occupation of Jerusalem and the province of Judea. However, the two most prominent historians that cover the life of King Herod don't mention anything about this massacre of the innocents. And this has led to many scholars debating whether this event ever took place. However, I think there are some good reasons why both of these historians never mentioned this event. The first historian that notably left out this event and his records of the kingship of King Herod was Nicholas of Damascus. Now, Nicholas was a prominent writer and historian who wrote The Life of Augustus and The Life of King Herod. But most notably, he wrote a 144-volume book that he called The Universal History. It was his attempt to cover everything in history. Nicholas was incredibly detail-oriented and wrote a lot, which has led some people to question why he didn't include the Massacre of the Innocents in his history on King Herod. But I think that question is fairly easy to answer, because Nicholas of Damascus was a close personal friend of King Herod, in addition to being his accountant. In fact, his history of the life of Herod paints an incredibly rosy picture of the king that isn't particularly accurate in many ways. 
He leaves off a lot of the more ruthless or brutal acts that King Herod did and only tells about the glories of the king. So there's no real reason that he would include something that we now call the massacre of the innocents. However, the second absence is a bit more puzzling. The Jewish-Roman historian Josephus wrote a lot about the Jews during this period. He wrote an entire book called The Antiquity of the Jews, which covered this period in great detail. He was no fan of King Herod. In fact, Herod killed three of his sons. He covered in much detail the atrocities committed by Herod the so-called Great. So many people have felt it was a bit odd that Josephus didn't include this event in his histories. But I think there's a pretty clear reason why Josephus would not include this event. Bethlehem was a small village, with maybe 2,000 people total living in the village. From our best estimates, somewhere between six to maybe two dozen children were actually killed in this massacre of the innocents. Any loss of life, especially the loss of a child so young, is a tragedy. But in this time, six deaths were not necessarily noteworthy. King Herod was a prolific murderer, whose atrocities were beyond count. And quite frankly, Josephus may not have included this in his history, because it just wasn't important enough. The loss of six or two dozen small boys was nothing compared to the mass murders that were carried out on an almost daily basis. I mean, just think about the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, Jesus wasn't the only one crucified on that day. There were people beside him. This was an incredibly brutal period of time, and for better or worse, atrocities like this were more or less commonplace. So even though this event isn't chronicled anywhere else, either in our Gospels or in any other major histories, that doesn't make it any less historically accurate. And while some people will debate whether this event took place or not, the absence of records of this event in other sources don't really make it any more or less likely to have taken place. But Matthew does include this gruesome event for very particular reasons. As we covered in great detail in past episodes, Matthew seems to have been writing to a mainly Jewish audience, either people who had recently converted to Christianity or Jews who were thinking about converting to Christianity. And many of them understood the historical details and accounts that were present in the Old Testament. And one of the first things that comes to mind when you read the account of Herod's slaughter of these innocent young boys is the parallels it has to Pharaoh in Egypt. Both accounts have the loss of innocent children, and in both cases, the designs of tyrants were foiled by the preservation of one who was destined to be a savior. In the Old Testament, Pharaoh orders the killing of Hebrew boys after his scribes warn him that a child would be born that would threaten his crown. With, of course, Moses being a child who was saved and being an instrument of God for the redemption of the Jewish people. 
In much the same way, Christ was saved by the predestination of God's warning to his parents through an angel. This, much like many of our earlier passages, draws upon Israel's history and the grief that it has felt throughout time and offers the promise of salvation through Christ in much the same way as Moses offered salvation. Matthew also shows how Christ fulfills the prophetic messages that are found in the Old Testament. It shows how Jeremiah, which is not written in an upbeat prophetic way, the wailing and crying of children, is fulfilled here in this moment. Not all prophecies are good, and their fulfillment, even though it is not good, still points to a larger part of God's plan. In this passage, we see God's children in pain with their mothers crying, in much the same way as those early Hebrews in Egypt were pained and suffered to see their own children die in front of them. But then, again, Joseph is warned in her dream to return back to his land of Israel. Now, Matthew is telling us, very particularly in this, that Joseph does not take his child back to the land of Israel, but instead goes to a Galilean town of Nazareth. The reason Matthew tells us this is because while King Herod has died, his son has taken over the throne. And much like Herod, his children and even grandchildren were not known for their kindness. Now, an interesting piece of note, Nicholas of Damascus, that historian and accountant that we talked about earlier in the episode, actually went to Rome and advocated for Herod's son to take the throne after him. Which makes you realize that if this historian was advocating for more Herods to be on the throne in Judah, he probably wouldn't present King Herod in a negative light to make him seem even slightly less legitimate. But then Matthew tells us that there was a reason that Jesus went to Nazareth instead of staying in Bethlehem or Jerusalem. And he goes into detail here, particularly for his Jewish audience. Galilee was considered a provincial backwater, not a main city. Most Jews would expect a great religious leader to come from somewhere like Jerusalem or Bethlehem, not from Nazareth. So Matthew is trying to show them how through scripture, the king of Israel was actually supposed to come from Nazareth, not from one of these other cities. Now, Matthew doesn't quote any prophet directly. There's no particular Old Testament text that he is referring to. In fact, he says the prophets, not a prophet. So we can see that Matthew knows that he is quoting several different writings, some from Isaiah and even some from Judges. But also, Matthew is using a bit of a pun or a play on words. Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth but he was also known as a Nazarene. There was a Nazarene vow that people would take. In particular, it was associated with a great holy man or with holiness. You can think of it in much the same way as someone would take a vow when they enter a religious order today. It was something that someone could do on top of what was already expected of them as a Jew. So when he is called the Nazarene, 
it's a play on the fact that he is a great holy man who has taken a wonderfully holy vow, who also is from the town of Nazareth. It explains both his place of birth and who he is. He's Jesus, born in Bethlehem, but Jesus who grew up in Nazareth. This also works to wonderfully parallel the story of the birth of Jesus with the birth of Moses. Most Jews of this time who were reading Jesus' story for the very first time would have considered Moses to be the most important person for the salvation of the Jewish people because Moses was the original savior. He was the one who led them out of Egypt into the promised land. Matthew is telling them in this gospel account that not only is Jesus like Moses and that he is a savior of the Jewish people, but in fact he will overcome Moses and do things that even Moses could not. But before we continue our talk about Jesus, we're going to talk about another holy man, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Hopefully, my sips of this old fashion weren't too distracting for you all, and I will see each of you next week. As always, thank you for joining me, and if you have any questions over the material, please email me at bibleperiodbourbon at gmail.com. If you do drink, please do so responsibly. While it is true that Jesus drank wine, an occasional glass is different than an addiction. If you need help, please seek it. If you need help but don't know where to look, please reach out to me and I'll be happy to guide you. Mm